This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, in our 228th episode, we have what will probably be quite a lengthy discussion <laughs> of the new Tanus site that was discovered in North Dakota. Oh yeah, lots of stuff written about that. We got tons of emails about it. It's, it's crazy, but we'll get into it later. We also have some news about dinosaur museums, as usual, and we have Dinosaur of the Day Gigant Spinosaurus. But first, we would like to thank some of our patrons who've already joined our community and are helping us to keep the podcast going. And this week, we'd like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Quinn Pomeroy, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Andrew and Helena Webb, Callum, Ricky, William, Red Sox Rex, Jay, Wouter, Chirac, and Moss Utah Raptor. And Moss Utah Raptor just bumped up their Patreon pledge to a level where they get a shout out. So Ooh. thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. We appreciate all of our patrons and the dinosaur enthusiast community is pretty awesome. And we couldn't do it without you. Definitely. So if you want to join in on the conversation, then check out our page at patreon.com slash I know dino. So jumping right into our massive story of the week. It's going to be the only one I cover because I probably spent about 15 hours <laughs> reading about this. Wow. I do read slowly and there were a lot of things I had to research because a lot of it's about sedimentology, which is not my strong suit. Right. So I had to learn a lot of new things. You also listened to a lot of things. I did. Yes. Because I, I prefer to listen since I read so slow. <laughs> anyway, this article was written by Robert De Palma and others and published in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences, also known as PNAS. And it's titled, A Seismically Induced Onshore Surge Deposit at the KPG Boundary, North Dakota. And from that title, you can tell that it is about the KPG Boundary, meaning the thing that wiped out the dinosaurs. But we're talking about North Dakota. So it's pretty far from the actual impact. Right. And you may have seen a bunch of different news articles with headlines about the day the dinosaurs died kind of thing. Yes. Yeah, that was the general trend. Although the word dinosaur is not mentioned once in the entire article. And the only dinosaur that's mentioned is mentioned briefly in the supplemental material. So not really about dinosaurs, but it is incredibly important to dinosaurs. And then the New Yorker had a piece that really covered all sorts of stuff that wasn't actually in the peer-reviewed journal article. So we're going to talk about that too. 
And again, thanks to everybody who shared this article and various news coverage pieces about it with us. So you might recognize the lead author's name, De Palma. He named Dakota Raptor back in 2015. It's a good one. It is. Definitely one of my favorite dinosaurs now. Mm-hmm. Some good paleo art with that too. Yeah, there's some really good stuff. But also on the author list are Peter Larson, who we talked to a while ago. He's one of the big T-Rex kind of for-profit, a little bit controversial that way in the paleontology community. And then Walter Alvarez, who is one of the guys, one of the Alvarezes, <laughs> who named the Alvarez hypothesis that it was the Chicxulub impact in the Yucatan Peninsula that wiped out the dinosaurs along with that iridium layer. So some pretty big names. And there's also a lot of other people who we wouldn't recognize by name because they don't deal with dinosaurs. They deal with sedimentology and the KPG boundary that are involved in this paper. So a little bit star studded. Cool. Yeah. So what they described was this new site in southwest North Dakota, which is near the Montana border. And it's part of the Hell Creek formation. It's actually pretty close to kind of the actual Hell Creek <laughs> because that's in eastern Montana. So it's like in that area. And Hell Creek, you know, is with the T-Rex and all that kind of stuff. It's at the very end of the Cretaceous, really the end of the Maastrichtian. So it's like the end of the end of the Cretaceous. And they call the site the Tanus site after a city in Egypt where archaeologists found a sort of Rosetta Stone-like document with three different languages on it. And that's because they think the site is so important that it has like this Tanus sort of level of significance. It unlocks some secrets. Exactly. And it definitely is a pretty amazing site. It already has a lengthy Wikipedia page with over a dozen sources because so many different news media pieces have interviewed different paleontologists and dug together little bits and pieces from all over the place. Uh, dug together. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because there, like I said, there isn't a lot of dinosaur related stuff in the actual article. So we had to get this from a lot of sources, which is why I was reading so much for the last couple of days. <laughs> so the Tana site is reported to be over a meter thick of stratigraphy, basically representing just a few hours when the Chicxulub impactor hit and then just a couple hours after that, which is really crazy because we believe based on what's there that there are actually individual layers from different hours. So in a couple of interviews, De Palma has called it like a slow motion camera <laughs> in terms of paleontology of what was happening. It's just really cool. So within that 1.3 meter thick or about four feet thick of those few hours, they apparently excavated over 400 cubic meters of sediment. Wow. Which, if it's about 1.3 meters thick, means that it's about 307 square meters, which works out to over 3,000 square feet of excavation. Pretty big. That's a, yeah, it's a ton. Usually, you know, when you're excavating a dinosaur, it might be like 15 feet long, maybe 5 feet tall, 10 feet tall. Mm -hmm. This is like... 20 times that big. And I don't even know, there aren't a lot of details on just how big the site is and things like that, but I know that work is still ongoing there. So there's more than this amount to be dug up for sure. And De Palma has been working on the area since at least 2012 too. So this is at least seven years of cumulative work at this point. Pretty good. They call the 1.3 meter thick piece that's like supposed to be over those few hours and quote unquote, event deposit. So it's just like a deposit of a single event is the idea. Basically, the way it works out is that the base of the event deposit is sandstone that's made up of a point bar. 
And a point bar is basically a sandbar at the edge of a meandering river. So if you imagine you've got like your river moving around and then there's kind of like those silty edges, kind of like a beach, I guess. It's like loose sand at the edges. They form these little bars like a sandbar. And then if it gets fossilized, obviously it turns into sandstone. Now, combining that with the fact that it's in southwest North Dakota, we believe that the Tana site was along a river, which was kind of headed towards the western interior seaway. So if you imagine you've got this like ancient river meandering through the Dakotas headed towards the western interior seaway, which filled up a lot of Montana and then, you know, kind of spread out a little bit as it went south. That's sort of the ecological situation that we're in. And really in that sandstone, they don't describe anything special. It's just kind of the base layer. Then at the very top above the event deposit is the typical iridium dust layer that's seen all over the world at the KPG boundary. So presumably the asteroid that hit in Mexico had a lot of iridium in it. And when it vaporized and it hit the ground, it like left this dust cloud that went all up in the atmosphere, got all over the earth and then like slowly settled down. It's pretty amazing to think how that ended up all over the earth. Yeah, we've we've found this layer all over the place. And when you do the argon dating in it, when you can, you find that it's all around the same age, that 66 million years ago, period. So basically, the idea is this 1.3 meters in between that dust layer and the fossilized sandstone is all stuff that happened in like within the day or however long it would take for that iridium dust to settle. All that stuff had to pile up. <laughs> so usually when you find the iridium layer, it's right on top of what would be that sandstone bed. But in this case, we just got a whole bunch of other material kind of shoved in between. Mm -hmm. So there's a ton of really interesting stuff in that event deposit, but I kind of wanted to set the stage for what actually was the event deposit because most things kind of glazed over how we knew what it was. So in there, we've got lots of sediment moving all over the place. It's got all sorts of interesting little layers in it. And it's also got tons of tektites, which are basically like glass marbles that are formed when you have a meteor or asteroid impacts the earth and then a whole bunch of sand or silica from somewhere gets sublimated or blasted out as like molten glass all over the earth. And then it rains back down as kind of like glass hail. Ooh, bet that caused a lot of death. Yeah, for sure. And it, we've talked before about how that effect also could have caused some of the fires because condensation releases a lot of heat. And so you could think of it like the meteor hit, it turned a lot of the energy into molten glass by melting it, then it spread all over the earth, and then it released that energy when the molten glass resolidified. Okay. Or went from gas to liquid. I'm not sure exactly what phase it was in throughout the process. So in this 1.3 meters of sediment, you can actually see the the marble-like shape of the yeah. tectite? Okay. Yeah. It's not flattened. No. Yeah. So they're the tektites usually stay round because since they're glass, they're like pretty hard and they don't usually get smashed too much. Mm -hmm. But sometimes they're called micro tektites too because they're pretty small. The biggest ones there were about 1.5 millimeters in diameter. So that, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty tiny. Right. But I feel like I can call them a tektite and not a micro tektite because you could see it with the naked eye, 1.5 millimeters. Sure. But as you got to the top of the layer, they got a lot smaller. So at the top, I think they were as small as like six microns. Hmm. And that's like a tenth of a human hair, sort of. And so that's definitely micro tektite mm -hmm. kind of size. But that's part of the story is like 
what we see is that at the bottom of the event deposit, you have these larger tektites, and at the top, you have much smaller tektites. So basically, the assumption there is that these tektites are going flying <laughs> out from the impact crater, and the big ones don't go as high, so they land sooner. Mm -hmm. And he even talks a little bit about how if you look around the world, say in Haiti, which is pretty close to the impact site, you find these really big tektites, like say up to eight millimeters. Oh. But if you go really far away, like say to Europe or something, you only find little tiny ones. And here you see big ones at the bottom, but then you also see smaller ones as you go up. Mm -hmm. So I guess what's happening is they're going higher and higher up and then it takes them longer to fall down. Or it could be that they have a lower terminal velocity. So they go up and then the air kind of slows them down a little bit more, like dust settles a lot more slowly. And actually, originally what they were thinking was, okay, you've got these tektites landing and we know this is an event deposit. So what's happening is the tsunami came in and it washed all this sediment there and then the tektites landed in it. But what they realized was the tektites go so fast because they have models of how fast the ejecta went from the crater. Mm -hmm. And it was going crazy fast because the meteor hit so crazy fast, so much energy that they're estimating it was going more than 10 times the speed of sound. So it only took about 15 minutes to make it all the way to North Dakota wow. <laughs> from Mexico. And because of that, there's no way the tsunami could have made it there that fast. Mm -hmm. So what they ended up deciding is that it was probably caused by an actual seiche. And a seiche is this really weird thing that happens where basically an earthquake causes a lake or a river or really any body of water to sort of slosh back and forth. And when it sloshes, it pushes all sorts of stuff up the banks of the river or up the sides of the lake bed. And by stuff, you mean rock? Well, it could be anything. So there's, <laughs> for example, there was this huge seiche in Alaska in I think the early 1900s. And there's a boat that got pushed up Wow! because there was a huge earthquake. Alaska gets big earthquakes and there was just this <laughs> lake that was in just the right spot and it just went sloshing and, you know, shoved everything that was on the surface. If it was at the edge, mm -hmm. you know, it could just get kind of stuck sort of like at the edge of a draining bathtub or something, you know, it just leaves stuff behind along the edges as it oh, drains down yeah. or sloshes to the other side. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, that's what they think was happening here. And as it sloshed in, it left all this sediment. And then when it kind of went back out, like low tide sort of thing, it left a bunch of stuff on the beach, basically. So what we're left with in this 1.3 meters is sort of a layer cake of stratigraphy. And there's at least four individual directions the water moved. Like it went in, it went out, and then it went in again, and then out again. So you can kind of measure that based on the way that the fish <laughs> are oriented in the stratigraphy. Oh, the poor fish. Yeah. <laughs> so there are literally fish. There's tons of fish in this deposit and they're, they're pointed in direction with the way the water was going. So yeah, that's one way to tell where it was going. <laughs> right. And then on top of that, the really cool thing is that with those layers, you can see the tektites, the really big tektites, especially like the over a millimeter size ones. You can see them leaving a little crater and it kind of pulls the layer cake down. That's so you, pretty powerful. Yeah. I mean, they were going terminal velocity, so hundreds of miles an hour probably. Right. And it was probably pretty soft sediment too, based on the fact that it could bend it like that. You know, it wasn't going into rock. Mm -hmm. And if it was rock, the glass probably would have just broken and not made a big divot in it. So based on that, they think, okay, yeah, it must have been soft, you know, sediment, just like silt from the bottom of the river gets washed up. And then this little glass ball comes 
flying down at hundreds of miles an hour and then leaves this big divot in it. It's really cool looking. Sounds like a really scary time. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Just another element to that. And one more note about the Seish too. They estimate based on kind of limited data we have about Seishas that it could have quote, easily generated seishas worldwide with amplitudes of the order 10 to 100 meters, end quote. And that's so all over the world, they think the Chicxulub impact going upwards of 300 feet potentially on the high end, 30 feet on the low end. Wow. Yeah. And that kind of agrees with the model we saw of sort of where the tsunami went all over the world. I was saying like 10 meters seems to be where it reached all over the world from so, that model. So what happens is the Chicxulub impact happens, then all these glass marbles start raining down <laughs> and then you have the seiches and the water levels are just going crazy and sloshing everything around. Yeah, everything becomes a tsunami. But on top of that, you also have the crazy burst of wind that comes through and like blows out everything's eardrums right. and kills a lot of things nearby just with the pressure. But that's nearby, worldwide? That would go pretty far, yeah. That would definitely go thousands of miles. And then everything bursts into flames with the glass condensing right. and the energy. And then also, yeah, the flooding from everything. Basically every kind of natural catastrophe type yeah. event. And then nuclear winter for a couple of years. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely bad. <laughs> and yet things survived. Yeah, some things. Mammalian ancestors survived. Yes. There's a little bit about that in this too, mm. but not in the actual paper. Again, just kind of in the hearsay portion. So the things that they actually did describe specifically in the paper that have been peer-reviewed, I want to emphasize the things that have been peer-reviewed versus just sort of casually mentioned. So the peer review includes a piece of amber with microtectites in it, which is just crazy. I don't think that's ever been found before. It's really useful for chemistry because it preserves the glass then in the original state and we can see potentially more details about what was in the meteorite or what was in the dirt when it went flying. There's a school of fish that, like I said, are facing the same direction of the flow with, quote, ejecta clustered in the gill region, end quote. Oh. Yeah. So they think that the fish probably suffocated from their gills getting clogged. That's probably the best way they could have You want to go quick for sure. Yeah. yeah. They also noted that their mouths are open, which is apparently something fish often do when they're trying to move more water over their lungs. You might have seen that happen if you've had a pet fish that you didn't properly care for. <laughs> I've definitely seen it before. <laughs> There's a brief mention about ammonites, which was mostly just to point out that there were marine and freshwater species mixed together during the crazy destruction. Oh, because of all the sloshing around and everything getting mixed together. Exactly. So they think that it was like, okay, we're in a river headed towards the Western Interior Seaway, right? So mm -hmm. it's mostly freshwater stuff. But then the Western Interior Seaway sloshes on up all the way back up the river mm -hmm. and you're getting all these ammonites. And that would have killed them as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just like the pressure and like the Pre change in if you're salinity. If you're freshwater versus saltwater, yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. But, you know, even just suffocating. Because they, even though they found these microtectites near the gills, it could have also just been full of sand too. You know, if it's getting shoved through all this silty water, that could have suffocated it too. But when you're digging a fish fossil out of sandstone, it's hard to tell if there was sand on the gills because it's like, you know, it's full of sand. Mm -hmm. But the tectites are still there at least. They also specifically mentioned both paddlefish, which are freshwater, as well as sturgeon, which I think they're thinking was freshwater, but I know that sturgeon can sometimes be from marine environments too. So I'm not sure exactly what kind of sturgeon they are. Then in the supplemental material, 
They also mention a lot of other stuff. They mention shark, mosasaur, and fish teeth all clumped together. So there's, you know, there's <laughs> big mix of mosasaur. That's crazy. You know, huge mosasaur. Their teeth are getting in there. There must have been so much confusion right before the end. Yeah. I'm guessing the bigger the animal is, the quicker it died. Because like how far does a mosasaur get sloshed around before it's unconscious? Right. Versus like a fish or, you know, an ammonite or something. Maybe it could hang on a little longer. And then they didn't say that they found like a mosasaur skull. So it could potentially just be that like a, a tooth that fell out of a mosasaur got washed inland too. Right. It's hard to say. But there definitely would not have been mosasaur teeth in a river headed towards the western interior sea mm-hmm. <laughs> under normal circumstances or shark teeth for that matter. This kind of completely, I don't know how to phrase this, but we've talked before about this impact and the destruction and everything. And sometimes we've thought, oh, maybe it would have been good to be a water creature. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but no, it was bad for everyone. <laughs> yeah. Every water environment is at least like 30 feet of waves. Mm-hmm. Again, if it's deep, I mean, you know, the deeper you are, probably the better off you are, would be my guess. But even then, who knows? <laughs> because your ecosystem's collapsing. Right. And then it might just be a slow death rather than Which a quick... could be worse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Another interesting thing about the teeth, it's not just what type of teeth they were. They also analyzed the oxygen-18 isotope in them, which correlates with the level of salinity that the animal was living in to kind of compare the marine to freshwater. So they found a pretty wide variation there. So kind of showed, yes, the shark tooth was from a marine environment. (laughs) And this, you know, paddlefish was from a freshwater environment. So just more confirmation on that. It's always good to have multiple sources. And then in non-animal world, they also found a tree trunk, which I think is where that amber was attached to with the microtectites, a section of a palm frond, and some other plants. So a lot of really interesting stuff. But like I said, the word dinosaur is nowhere in the article. In that supplemental material, though, they do mention a ceratopsian ilium, which is a hip bone that was already exposed in the area. And then they did a little digging. Well, we know the dinosaurs were affected. (laughs) Yes, for sure. So, I mean, you can definitely infer from this crazy environment and the fact that we know it was a KPG boundary, that this was the day the dinosaur died or whatever title you want from it. Mm -hmm. But Really, this was about a bunch of fish dying. (laughs) Really, all the article was about, at least, other than a little bit in the supplemental material. So that's everything that was officially published in the PNAS article. It's been peer-reviewed. It's gone through scientific rigor. But even with that, you know, the peer review process continues on after the publication. So there's a chance that someone will look at this and say, that's not a sturgeon, that's a whatever kind of fish. And there'll be some more refinements. But generally, you know, I think we can be pretty confident that this is a deposit from the KPG boundary, that at least it is before the KPG boundary, because we have that iridium layer on top of it. There could be some debate about whether or not it was immediately after the impact, but the fact that there are all these tectites through it, it seems pretty solid. Right. The stuff I'm about to say, not so much, (laughs) because it was just published in an article in The New Yorker, and there's no scientific requirements of that. And in fact, a lot of it was done kind of by just Robert De Palma, so a lot of his co-authors might not have even seen this stuff. So it's really just like one guy's opinion at this point. And one thing that was a little bit frustrating about it too, is that This article came out three days before the PNAS article. So a lot of people were expecting tons of this stuff to be in 
the real journal article. And then when we got access to it, we we're like, wait, this is just sedimentology and tectites right. and a couple of fish. Where's all the dinosaurs? <laughs> so anyway, getting into it. Apparently, Robert De Palma contacted the New Yorker back in 2013, and he required some pretty intense secrecy about this find. And the New Yorker titled their article, The Day the Dinosaurs Died, a Young Paleontologist May Have Discovered a Record of the Most Significant Event in the History of Life on Earth. Which quote. is quite the title. It is. I don't even think it's the most significant mass extinction in the history of Earth, let alone event. <laughs> it might be in terms of the number of people interested in it. Maybe. I mean, the great dying in like the Permian. Right. That is pretty epic. That was much bigger. The Cambrian explosion is also way more important. But anyway, we don't have to get into these semantics. They also said that more than 99.9999% of all living organisms on Earth died, which I think might be a little bit of hyperbole. Mm. Because I don't think like all the bacteria died, and that's probably most of the living organisms. But anyway, I don't want to poke too many holes in it because there's going to be a lot of other holes to poke. Yeah, it's a nitpicky one. <laughs> yeah. So the picture and the language associated with this is kind of all about presenting Robert De Palma as like a superhero paleontologist. So it's not too surprising that it's mostly just like his firsthand accounts of what he found. And that, I mean, that's kind of what he was going for, you know, in contacting the New Yorker and giving them some exclusive information and all that kind of stuff. Sure. Interestingly, he says he never digs on public land because he prefers to work with private landowners and get exclusive rights. And sometimes he even sells the fossils to raise money. So he's not like a typical paleontologist. Right. He doesn't go through the traditional channels that most paleontologists go through. Most paleontologists, at least paleontologists that publish in peer-reviewed journals tend to work for a major university and they tend to work mostly on public land. They'll get, you know, just permission to go on various public sites and dig for fossils. And if they do go on private sites, they either try to get them donated or they try to get a donor to buy it. And they're not really allowed to buy it. So sometimes that can get a little bit dicey. Mm -hmm. But once they do buy it, it goes into the museum collection and it's definitely never sold. Right. So this is a, a little bit of a different process. It's a little bit more like Pete Larson at Black Hills Institute, who does some paleontology, but also does some fossil dealing. So I think some paleontologists from the outset might be a little bit uncomfortable with this discovery, just from the fact that a guy who sells fossils is the one writing about it. Right. But that doesn't mean that his findings aren't valid. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So as usual, he has secured exclusive rights to the Tana site for some undisclosed amount of money, according to The New Yorker. And it's described in The New Yorker as being standard practice. But like we explained, like that's not really standard practice. Like it is sort of standard practice that you have to pay landowners when they want money but really, it's more common for them to donate it, I would say. That would probably be the standard practice. And a lot of paleontologists, since this article came out, have criticized the fact that he has exclusive access to the site and they can't get in there and see the fossils as well. But, you know, museums pull this kind of stuff all the time, too, with access to their collections. So I don't, I don't know. One interesting thing about that, too, is the New Yorker basically justified all of the secrecy about the fact that he's been digging there since 2012 and not really sharing the information with the public or with his fellow scientists in terms of the bone wars from the 1800s. 
that like, oh, this isn't, you know, secrecy isn't new to paleontology because there was this thing called the bone wars and everything had to be secret. It's like, that is not where we are now. Just because that happened 100 something years ago, a lot <laughs> has changed in the last a lot century. Has. Yeah. The level of secrecy does not need to be nearly as high. No one's going to get in there and steal this stuff. Or destroy anything. Yeah. And even if there are things you can do if you're afraid of that. So sometimes people will camouflage the exact location of the site. But he didn't really even do that in there. He has a pretty detailed map of where it is. It's not like, I don't think he has GPS coordinates, but it's not the kind of thing where it would be super hard to figure out where it was. Anyway, there's a large list of things in the New Yorker article that aren't in the paper. So I'm going to go through some of them. First, there was a jaw of a small mammal and they said, quote, this one was already dead when it was buried, end quote, and later that it was a relative to primates. So I don't know why you know that it was prove. already dead when it was buried. Yeah. And that, it was, <laughs> that it was a relative to primates. There was one criticism of De Palma later in the article where they said that he tends to like overinterpret or sometimes like use extra flowery language that might not be warranted. Oh, the New Yorker article said that? Yes, because they talked to some other paleontologists about him to try to, because they couldn't actually ask the paleontologist much about what they thought of his work because it hadn't been published yet. Okay. So all they could do was ask about like, well, what do you think about Robert De Palma? And some of them were like, I don't know who that is. And other ones are like, oh yeah, I remember that one time he mentioned a Dakota Raptor and accidentally included some other bone in it. But I don't really think that's fair though, because the Dakota Raptor find was really good. And just because it had one other bone in it, he still did really good science on that. Mm. But like you can tell from that that the color commentary is really at a high <laughs> level in the New Yorker article. It's not just scientific fact. He also found something that he says looks like a mammal's burrow with potentially a mammal still inside it and that it might have been born in the Cretaceous and died in the Paleogene, which is kind of a cool thought. Yeah, it is. Because <laughs> it seems to have burrowed down through that iridium layer. So it's like it survived and then like dug back in terms of sedimentology into the past, <laughs> and that's where it died. It's pretty crazy. They found something that's either a flower or an echinoderm, which is a marine creature. So Very different. Yeah. They also found a dinosaur feather, which they say is over a foot long and possibly from the forearm of a Dakota raptor. So one of the articles I read, they talked about how the quill knob on the Dakota raptor forearm matches the size of the feather quill at about three and a half millimeters, which is pretty massive for a feather quill. And if it's over a foot long, it makes sense that it would be so big. I was hoping though in the New Yorker article, because they start talking about these theropod feathers that he found, that he was going to say like, and we found this tyrannosaur bone next to it. Hmm. And then it would be like the first evidence of a feathered tyrannosaur. But we don't have that yet. <laughs> Maybe someday. Maybe. One can hope. They found a six foot long fish. It's pretty massive, possibly with gut contents. Nice. And he says it's likely a new species. Like I mentioned before, there's a ceratopsian hip bone. And in the New Yorker article, they talk about how it was previously discovered by a different paleontologist who had bought rights to the land to do some digging up of dinosaurs. And then they excavated part of this fossilized hip and then decided like eh, it's not worth continuing to excavate it doesn't look like there's going to be any awesome ceratopsian skull attached to it or anything and then gave up and then de palma wanted it for the exact reason that this guy didn't want it <laughs> so that guy looked at it and said it looks like it all got deposited at the same time i don't want that it doesn't look like the typical you know like 
even small layers where you find these great dinosaur fossils. And De Palma had previously worked on something similar with these fine layers sort of near the KPG boundary and, you know, was really excited to get it. (laughs) So that's kind of funny. But in the New York article, they say there's a, quote, suitcase size piece of fossilized skin from a ceratopsian, end quote, Hmm. which sounds pretty fantastical. And it's probably hyperbole because in the supplemental material, it talks about how there's a skin impression from a ceratopsian, which is very different than fossilized skin and also much more likely in sandstone like this. Right. So, oops. (laughs) They also found ammonites that they say were tossed inland. There's an ant's nest with ants inside, a possible wasp burrow, another mammal burrow, quote, with multiple tunnels and galleries, end quote, several shark teeth, a large sea turtle femur, several new fish species, a plant that might have been related to the banana, (laughs) (laughs) and, quote, more than a dozen new species of animals and plants and several other burrow types, end quote which is all just crazy. This is an amazing number of things. That makes sense. Everything got mixed up. Yeah, but like the level of preservation. But you're right. The variety of stuff is just crazy. They also found what they're describing as an unhatched egg with an embryo inside it, which I think has only been found once or twice before. Mm -hmm. And they also said that, quote, at the bottom of the deposit, in a mixture of heavy gravel and tectites, De Palma identified the broken teeth and bones, including hatchling remains, of almost every dinosaur group known from the Hell Creek, as well as pterosaur remains, end quote. That's a lot of different dinosaurs. It's a very bold claim, because <laughs> that would be pterosaurs, ceratopsians, hadrosaurs, ornithomimosaurs, ankylosaurs, hypsilophodonts, dromaeosaurs, pachycephalosaurs. All kinds of theropods. Yeah. So if they found all of those things and some of them as hatchlings, that would just be amazing. Does that mean the Saurian team has a lot of updating to do? (laughs) Oh, God. I hope not. I feel so bad for them at this point. If they found a Tyrannosaur feather, then they'd have to like, maybe they could just undo it. They just go back to the old Gen 1 Tyrannosaur with feathers at that point. (laughs) But this is, I guess, is technically unconfirmed or unpeer-reviewed. Yeah, this is all just like basically hearsay from one person. Although, you know, he is a paleontologist and he's the one that's been working on it. Right. So it could be his next few papers. Yes. So that's what a lot of people are expecting, that there's going to be more papers coming out and it's going to have all this stuff in it, hopefully sooner than later. Yeah, we're all expecting now. Yeah. (laughs) Come on, Robert. Speed up. (laughs) (laughs) But like I mentioned before, there has been a lot of criticism, partly about the way that the New Yorker described things and the fact that they didn't really emphasize that this stuff hadn't been peer reviewed and what was included in the paper and what wasn't since the paper hadn't come out yet. And also for publishing early. But it turns out that the New Yorker found out that somebody else wasn't following the PNAS embargo because they weren't, uh, no one was supposed to publish about this until the official journal article came out. And when the New Yorker found out about it, they asked. PNAS if they could publish early too so that they didn't get scooped because they were supposed to have like this pretty exclusive interview and access. That makes sense. They put a lot of work into it and they have this whole audio part to it. Yeah, exactly. 
And then so PNAS said, yeah, sure, you can, if you're going to get scooped, you can publish early because somebody's publishing early anyway. This seems to happen a lot, a lot more than I would have thought before yeah. we started this podcast. I don't know how they keep sending these articles to people that <laughs> disrespect the embargoes. Maybe they don't. Maybe now PNAS won't send anything to whoever that was. Nobody disclosed it either. I was yeah. like, wow, you really... Well, the last time we heard about it, nobody disclosed who was breaking the embargo either. Yeah, man, it's crazy. guess maybe it's some kind of journalist code I don't know about. Yeah, could be. Yeah, so you can be mad at The New Yorker for using too flowery of language, but you shouldn't be mad at them for publishing early because they didn't really have a choice. <laughs> but then there's, like I said, there's been so, a lot of criticism from other scientists too, mostly around the fact that it's so secretive because the quicker that information spreads throughout the scientific community, the quicker we can move forward and learn more and more and more. And also the more scientists that can get involved, the better. And De Palma's kind of hoarding it. So people are jealous, basically. <laughs> and then there are people who, like I saw a comment where someone is researching something similar and they're like, oh, I really want to find out about that specific marine mollusk or whatever that he hinted at because I'm working on that. But it's since it's so secretive, he can't get access to it. So that's the Tana site. It's a lot to share. Yep. But I mean, that footnote of it should have every type of dinosaur that's been in the Hell Creek is pretty crazy. And over a dozen new species. Mm -hmm. But like, we don't really know what any of that means. <laughs> Yet. <laughs> yeah, definitely a pretty epic find. Hopefully that wasn't too long. There's just a lot to cover. Yeah, and it was all interesting. Thanks. At least to me, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so in other news, scientists from the Children's Museum of Indianapolis, the University of Manchester, and Naturalist Biodiversity Center in the Netherlands are working together to explore sites in northern Wyoming. And they're calling it Mission Jurassic. It's a pretty good name. They'll be checking out the Jurassic Mile, which is an area about 2.6 square kilometers, where dinosaur trackways and a couple sauropods have been found. Oh. Yeah, you know how I like sauropods? I do. So the team's going to start digging at the beginning of June. There's a chance they'll find a new species. I really like that name, Mission Jurassic, though. Yeah, that's cool. In Wakayama Prefecture in Japan, museum employee Satoshi Utsunomiya from the Wakayama Prefectural Museum of Natural History found a spinosaur tooth. And he went to buy Milan oranges and he saw a stone on the road. So he broke up the stone and found the fossil inside, which was about 14 millimeters long. And it was the tip of the tooth. It was donated to the museum. It's going to be on display between June and September. Oh, OK, this makes more sense. I was wondering, why was this news? Because there's spinosaur teeth all over Japan. Mm -hmm. Like you can buy them at museums for like 20 bucks. But if it's 14 millimeters long and it's just the tip of the tooth... It's still really small, but maybe from that you can tell that it's from a much bigger tooth or something. Yeah. I think the story of how he found it was pretty cool. Yeah, that must be it. A few things going for it. It's going on display. Center of In Boise, Idaho, the Discovery Center of Idaho is getting a T-Rex exhibit. So they partner with Chevron. They got $75,000 to build and install a 1,000 square foot space to feature Tinker, a juvenile T-Rex cast, and have some hands-on exhibits. So the exhibit will open December of this year. In L.A., the Antarctic Dinosaurs exhibit is now at the L.A. Natural History Museum. It started off in Chicago. So quick reminder that you can see Cryolophosaurus, Glacialosaurus, and Sauropodomorphs, and you can handle tools scientists use when they're digging in the Antarctic. Interesting. Yeah, we should go. Yeah, I want to see Cryolophosaurus and Glacialosaurus. You can see the Sauropodomorphs if you want. 
<laughs> I will. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, the Antarctic dinosaurs, it's always really interesting because the conditions for excavating is just so different from oh, yeah. everywhere else. Yeah, it's crazy. Usually it's really hot. They're not so much. <laughs> nope. And last, thanks to Jeremy who shared this one with us via Twitter. It's about Indomation. It's a stop motion animated short film. It's about six minutes long. And it's described as a whimsical tribute to the filmmakers and artists who brought us the Jurassic franchise. So they made hand-built sets, custom-painted action figures, took them 90 hours of animation work, and it's really well done. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now onto our dinosaur of the day. Gigant Spinosaurus, which was a request from Marcos, so thanks. It was a stegosaur that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Sichuan, China. And the holotype is of an adult and included a partial skeleton of a subadult with lower jaws, no skull, hind feet, and end of the tail, as well as plates, spines, and scutes. They also found a skin impression from the left shoulder. Gigant Spinosaurus was medium size. It's estimated to be about 14 feet or 4.2 meters long and weighed 1,500 pounds or 700 kilograms. It had large shoulder spines, twice as long as the shoulder blades, and small plates on its back. And it had a really large head with 30 teeth in the lower jaw, as well as broad hips and robust forelimbs. Xing Lida and others described skin impressions in 2008. They were pentagonal or hexagonal in shape. The skeleton had a pathology in the left femur, probably from a bone tumor. This is based on CT scans. The type species is Gigantspinosaurus citronensis. And the genus name means giant spined lizard. Yeah, it has nothing to do with Spinosaurus, which is pretty confusing since it's 
gigant spinosaurus. Right, since it's a stegosaur. You really think it would be gigant stegosaurus, but it's gigant spinosaurus. <laughs> and the species name refers to Sichuan. So gigant spinosaurus was found in 1985 by Ouyang Hui and described in 1986 by Gao Ruchi and others who thought it was Tojiangosaurus. It was named in 1992 by Ouyang in an abstract for a lecture, and it was thought to be a nomum nudum until 2006. The abstract had enough of a description so that it was kind of official. Well, I guess it was official and then thought to be nomum nudum. But then Tracy Ford wrote an article in 2006 that reconstructed gigant spinosaurus. There had been other images of it published before. And Ford said that earlier representations had the shoulder spines upside down and his reconstruction had them going upwards. In 2005, Peng Guangzhou and others redescribed Gigant Spinosaurus. And in 2006, Susanna Maidman and Wei Guangbiao also found it to be a valid taxon. And you can see Gigant Spinosaurus at the Zikong Dinosaur Museum in China. That's apparently a really good one. We got to make it there. There's a lot of museums we got to go to still. Especially in China, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is that the age of dinosaurs, I'm going to say, is basically just about the Cretaceous, <laughs> which is controversial because a lot of people think of the Jurassic when they think about dinosaurs. But really, the Cretaceous accounts for 79 of the 175 million years that dinosaurs existed. But really, during the Triassic, even though there was a lot of really interesting, cool stuff running around, it wasn't really the age of the dinosaurs. It was the age of a whole bunch of different diapsids. The age of the dinosaurs is really Jurassic and Cretaceous, and the Cretaceous is 79 million years long, whereas the Jurassic is only 56 million years long. So most of it was in the Cretaceous. And in the beginning of the Jurassic, there wasn't that much anyway. It's like late Jurassic, then Cretaceous. On top of that, there's lots of groups that didn't even evolve until the Cretaceous, including Tyrannosaurids, Raptors that were anything larger than a bird, Ankylosaurs, Titanosaurs, Neoceratopsians, which are all the big ceratopsians that everyone knows, Therizinosaurs, and a bunch of other stuff, including hadrosaurs. So most of the stuff that people think about when they think about dinosaurs are Cretaceous. So really, it should be called Cretaceous Park and not Jurassic Park. I guess it doesn't quite flow as well. Yeah. But it's probably why the huge journal named Cretaceous Research is called Cretaceous Research and not Jurassic Research because... The Cretaceous is where most of the action is. I'm also biased because I love Ankylosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a lot of times people don't think about it, but the three periods of the Mesozoic are not equal in length. The Cretaceous is by far the longest. Jurassic is less long and the Triassic is definitely the shortest and even shorter if you're only talking about the part that has dinosaurs in it. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. You can also join our growing community on Patreon, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.